A tale is told about a small town that had historically been dry. But one day, a man, businessman, came to town and decided he was going to open up a tavern. Well, one of the local churches decided that they were not going to stand for that, so they were going to hold an all-night prayer meeting to pray that this tavern would not open and be successful. Well, it just so happened that that night a thunderstorm came by and lightning struck the barn before it could open and burned it to the ground. Well, the bar owner took the church to court and sued them, claiming that it was because of their prayers that his bar burned down. And, of course, the church went and hired a lawyer to argue that it was not their fault that his barn burned down. Well, it went to court, and the presiding judge over the case said this, no matter how this turns out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in the power of prayer, and the Christians do not. Do we believe in the power of prayer? What is prayer? Well, prayer is an expression of faith and trust. It is an opening of ourselves to God and sharing everything of ourselves with Him. It's a sharing of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength with our Creator and our Savior. Now, at one point in Jesus' ministry, His disciples asked Him the question, how do we pray? Teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught them to pray something that that we call by various names. We call it the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Model Prayer. I've even heard it called the Disciples' Prayer. But whatever we call it, it is the prayer that we pray as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that this prayer is not something to be treated legalistically. I've said this again and again and again through these sermons on the Sermon on the Mount because historically we tend to take this sermon and be very legalistic about it. And and the point of this sermon is that Jesus is not legalistic. The Pharisees were legalistic. And that's what Jesus is countering in this message So this isn't some sort of a a formula that God is interested in us following. I mean, not even all of Jesus' own prayers contained every element of this. If you take the prayers of Jesus or some of the Psalms, like the one that was read this morning, it doesn't necessarily line up with the pattern we see in, in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives us this to simply help us learn how to pray with sincerity from our heart, and how to pray with simplicity. He's asking us to open ourselves up to the Father in prayerful trust. And this prayer gives us a pattern. It is a model. It's it's an example for us to help us to understand who God is, to help us understand how we approach Him in prayer, and what kind of people we are to be because we pray in this manner. Now this prayer is not for the complacent Christian who is satisfied with the treasures of this world. I read one commentary on Matthew that said, this is a prayer for the desperate, who recognize that this world is not as it should be, and that only God can set things right. So I want, to, I want us to look this morning at this prayer, and I want us to notice four principles, four important principles in this prayer, and seven petitions, seven things we are asking 
from the Father. The first principle is this. Kingdom prayer is grounded in an intimate relationship with the Father. The first two words of this prayer are what? Our Father. Now, for some people, that's difficult because maybe they've not had the best father. And and no father is perfect. Some of us have very good fathers that we love very much. And some of us have fathers who have struggled to be good dads. And so you may have mixed feelings or even just negative feelings about the whole idea of father. But the beauty of recognizing God as our father is that He is a perfect father. Amen? He is the original model and design and foundation for what fatherhood should look like. So whatever negative experiences you may have had with your dad, God is the opposite of that. And whatever good experiences you've had with your dad, God is infinitely better than that. He is the perfect father. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says, You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? So that that, that we are conversing with our Father, our eternal heavenly Father, that prayer is a conversation between a father and a child, means that prayer isn't a complex ritual. It is a simple cry of faith. It's a trusting. It's a resting in the strong, safe, and secure arms of our Father in Heaven. When Abby talks to me, she doesn't engage in some kind of formal, complex ritual to come to me and talk to me, does she? She says, Daddy! And I turn my attention to her, and we talk. That's prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. We don't pray like the pagans. I mentioned this last week. We don't pray like the pagans trying to get God's attention and convince Him to stoop down and take notice of us. That's not what prayer is for the Christian. Prayer is a loving, trusting dependence on the God who is our Father, who loves us, who watches over us, who provides for us. That's the first principle. If you want to have this kind of prayer, you have to have an intimate relationship with the Father. The second principle is that kingdom prayer seeks God's glory, not our own glory. It's about God primarily. Prayer is about God. It's about us secondarily. Now, as we look at the petitions in this prayer, I want us to notice something. Of the seven petitions, the first three are you petitions. They are directed to God. They are asking things for God's sake. And then the last four are we petitions. They're about us. This prayer begins focusing on the Father. We seek first for His name to be hallowed, for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done. Then we pray for our daily bread and our debts to be forgiven and our not being led into temptation into temptation, but being delivered from evil. And why? Why do we focus on Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, before we focus on our daily bread and our debts forgiven? Why? Because for Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
This prayer from beginning to end is about and for God. His glory, not our glory. So that brings us to the first three petitions. And we're going to look at these real quick. The first one is, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now what does that mean? We aren't praying for God's name to be holy. God's name is holy, amen? We're praying for God's name to be recognized as holy. We're praying for God's name to be treated as holy. We are people who want to make sure that when we talk about God and in how we live for God, our lives reflect the name that already is holy. And so if we're going to pray, hallowed be your name, then we need to live our lives to the holiness of God's name and not drag His name through the mud, but to make sure that in everything we say and do, we reflect to a watching world that God's name is holy. The second petition is your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first three things we pray for aren't even about us. They are all about Him. May your name be treated as holy. May your kingdom come. May your rule and your reign in this world come. And may your will be done on this earth just as it is already being done in heaven. It's God-centered. It's vertical. Now these last two petitions bring us to the third principle. And that's this. Kingdom people. That's hopefully you and I. It's us in this place. Kingdom people long for the coming of God's kingdom and the doing of God's will. That's why we pray for that before we pray for anything for ourselves. If we are praying and seeking for God's name to be hallowed, for His kingdom to come and His will to be done, then that means that we are desiring the same things God desires. Amen? And Jesus says that if you ask for whatever your heart desires, God will give it to you. Well, that's predicated upon the idea that your heart and my heart desires what God's heart desires. If we're praying, your name be treated as holy, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that means that we are going to pray for the things that God wants to have happen. Not the things we want to have happen. It means that we are living in anticipation of the return of Christ, the consummation of the age, when everything will be made new and whole again. In short, these first three petitions are saying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we're desiring. To pray and seek for God's rule and reign to be a reality here today in our midst also means that we are working for God's kingdom righteousness wherever we are. It means we are agents of His coming kingdom. Now, Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, His entire life was focused on pointing people to God and His kingdom, which is mentioned more than 50 times in Matthew alone. 50 times in these 28 chapters, Jesus mentions and talks about the kingdom of God. Matthew 4.17 says that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom invaded human history in the person of Christ. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom, His kingdom is here today in our hearts and in our lives. 
And the watching world should look at us and it should see glimpses of His kingdom breaking through the world like pinpricks of light in the darkness. They should look at us and see a city shining on a hill and say, that is the kingdom of God and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's what it means to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the Jewish people heard language about kingdom, the kingdom of God coming, many believed that Jesus was going to come and bring a a, a heavenly army to overthrow the corrupt, power-hungry Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some hoped that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah who would come and restore Israel as a strong nation, the strongest on the earth. But Jesus didn't come that first time to bring political conquest or a political kingdom to this world. He came to bring His eternal kingdom into the hearts of men and women. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And in Luke 17, Jesus says, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is where? Within you. And he's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to us. The kingdom of God is within us. And so when we pray this part of the prayer, we ask God for a picture of how the world ought to be. And we commit ourselves to work to make this world that better place. And we dream of the day when God will make all things new and will restore everything to the way it was always supposed to be. And you know, really, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. In this sermon, Jesus is painting a picture for us of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. This whole sermon is telling us if you're a kingdom citizen, if you are that city on a hill, if you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, this is what it looks like. And this is the kind of prayer that you pray. I think all of us would agree this world is desperately in need of God's kingdom to break through. You look at what's happening in the Ukraine. You look at what's happening in Gaza and Israel. You look at what's happening... In, in, in Africa, you look at what's happening uh, in the United States. You look at what's happening on our border. You look at what's happening with refugees who have nowhere to go and, and, and children who have no parents. And you say, come, Lord Jesus, come and make all of this right. But until you do, show me what I can do. Show me how I can live. Tell me how I can pray to help your kingdom to come for my neighbor that's hurting, for that kid that's bullied in my class, for the people in our community who have nothing to eat and no place to sleep. Show me what I can do to bring your kingdom to them. Those are the first three petitions, the we petitions. The last four are... I'm sorry, the you petitions. The last four are the we petitions. We turn the focus from God to us. And the fourth petition is, give us today our daily bread. You know, asking things from God is an important part of prayer. I think some... We tend to go from one extreme to the other. We either 
are so self-conscious about asking things for God, for ourselves, that we don't want to do it. You know, we feel guilty, we feel bad, I don't want to be self-centered. Or we're on the other extreme, that's all we do. And we treat God as a heavenly ATM machine, and we just stick in that prayer card and get what we want. Neither of those are the reality. The fact that Jesus goes from focusing on the Father to, to, to telling us to ask for our daily bread is significant. Jesus is concerning Himself with providing our food, our drink, and our everyday necessities. The the, the great writer of spiritual disciplines and prayer, Richard Foster, said this, that in this prayer, Jesus has transformed the trivialities of everyday life. He welcomes us with our thousand and one trifles, for they are each important to Him. Jesus is telling us that it matters to God whether we have bread to eat today. The Creator of the universe is concerned with whether you're eating food today. Isn't that amazing? God wants us to bring our requests to Him. But notice a few things about praying for daily bread. We, first of all, it's that we pray for bread. We pray for our needs, not our wants. God didn't say, give us this day our daily porterhouse or lobster tail, did He? No. Our bread. I mean, I mean it's... it's Bread is one of the most basic foods there is. You, now, I love bread, as you can tell. But you may think bread's boring. You may think, oh, it's just bread. But to pray for daily bread expresses dependence on God for your needs each day. It reminds us that we need to learn to live simply. That we need to learn to be satisfied. As Paul said, I've learned to be content in all things, we need to learn to be satisfied with the necessities and with the daily blessings of life and ask God to provide for them. And notice that it's not give me this day my daily bread, but it's give us today our daily bread. I ask not only for what I need for myself, but also that I may share it with others. I pray not just for God to provide my needs, but the needs of those around us. And so in our petition for God's provision, there are two kinds that we make. The first we call supplication. That's praying for my needs. We see an example of this in James 5.13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. So we are instructed to pray for our own needs. If I find myself in need and trouble, I'm in a desperate situation... I am to pray and ask God to provide my needs. I'm to cast my burdens upon Him. That's supplication. But the second kind of petition that we can ask for is praying for others' needs. And we call that intercession because you're interceding on behalf of someone else. We see an example of that in the next verse in James. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over Him, to intercede for Him. So we're to pray for our own needs, but we're also to pray for other people's needs. To concern ourselves with what burdens our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. We should pray for each other. And finally, notice that it's daily bread. We are to daily depend on God. In fact, in the Greek, when Jesus says today, that word is emphatic. It's something that's needed right now. 
Think about the Israelites back in, in Exodus. Remember, they're wandering in the, in the desert. And they're hungry. They have no food to eat. And what does God cause to fall with the dew every morning? Manna. Just a simple a food, a simple bread as you could have. Manna. Not a lot there. Not a lot of taste, not a lot of texture, but it provided their sustenance. And if you remember the instruction, they were to go out and gather how much? Just enough for each day. And if they tried to hoard it to the next day, what happened? It'd spoil. And if they, if they went out and they gathered what they thought was enough, did it ever turn out to not be enough? No. That is a great example for us of what Jesus is telling us here. If we pray for God to give us our daily needs, He will make sure that we have our daily needs. It may not be our wants, but it will be our needs. The fifth petition. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some translations say trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. I heard about one little girl who prayed, and forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. You know, that's pretty accurate. I kind of like that. Sometimes people put trash in our baskets, don't they? And we need to forgive them. Jesus here is inviting us to ask God to cancel out the debts in His account book. Debts that we can never repay. We're to come to Him and say, Father, cancel out these debts. Forgive us of our sins. God desires us, like Himself, to be a people who give, but also a people who forgive. God gives us our daily bread and forgives us our debts. We're to pray for God to give other people their daily bread, and we are also to forgive them the debts they owe us. There's a responsibility here, both in praying for daily bread, and there's a responsibility here in praying for forgiveness. I can't ask God to forgive me my debts if I'm not willing to forgive those who owe me, am I? I can't do that. I can't expect that. Matthew 5, 7 says, remember this was back in the Beatitudes, where Jesus is describing what kingdom people look like. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And what is mercy? It's simply not giving someone what they deserve. It's demonstrating forgiveness toward the guilty. Now Jesus, at the end of this, Prayer says in verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. By the very nature of the created order, we have to give in order to receive. To receive love, I have to be willing to give love. If I'm not able to express love to other people, I'm unable to receive love to take that in. And likewise, our ability to receive God's forgiveness is related to our ability to give forgiveness to other people. St. Augustine said, God gives where He finds empty hands. Are your hands empty? You can't receive the forgiveness of God if your hands are full of unforgiveness toward other people. We must let it go. And I know a lot of you parents just now, I put a terrible tune in your head when I said that. But we do. We have to let it go. We have to let go of the bitterness. Let go of the sin. Let go of the anger. Let go of the, I deserve this and these are my rights and you better. We've got to let it go. 
so that God can be free to pour out to us the forgiveness and the peace and the love and the joy that we want. Now, what does it mean for me to forgive someone who is wrong to hurt me? Does it mean that I don't hurt anymore? No. Does it mean I have to forget what happened? No. Does it mean I have to pretend that what happened didn't, didn't matter or wasn't significant? No. Again, Richard Foster said it this way, forgiveness is a miracle of grace whereby the offense no longer separates. It means that I don't use the wrong that you did to me to drive a wedge between us. It means that I've chosen love, and it's a choice. I've chosen love. I've chosen the power of love. I've said that the power of love that joins us together is more powerful than the offense that drives us apart. The feelings can change with time, but to forgive someone else is to make a choice. And Jesus says that we are to make that choice if we want to receive the forgiveness of the Father. The sixth petition says, lead us not into temptation. Now, now that part of the prayer seems strange. Why would I need to pray and ask God to not lead me into temptation? I mean, is God the one who tempts me to sin? No. In fact, James 1.13 says, let no man say that God has tempted him, for God tempts no one. God isn't the one who tempts us to sin. The word temptation here means testing or trying. It's a plea for God to protect us in times of testing. While God doesn't cause us to be tempted, God can certainly use how we handle temptation as a test to reveal what's in our heart, can't He? I love what Psalm 17.3 says, Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil and my mouth has not transgressed. Or as we read and sang last Sunday in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're saying, Lord, may there be nothing in my heart that will entice me away from You and the plan that You have for me. You're saying, God, work in my heart to help me to be the kind of man, to be the kind of woman who doesn't give in to temptation. Help me to be the kind of man or the kind of woman or the kind of young person who doesn't fall away in times of trial and testing, but who holds fast. That's the prayer that we're praying when we say, lead us not into temptation. And then the final petition, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us. God is our deliverer. God is our rescuer. Just as He delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, just as He delivered Daniel from the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flaming furnace, just as He delivered David from Goliath, and just as He delivered Jesus Christ from death, God stands ready to deliver you. He is your deliverer. God is here ready to rescue you from your enemy, the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. When you hear that lion's roar, when you know that the devil is tempting you, Jesus will rescue you from that if you call on Him. He will provide for you a way out of that temptation. 
And when you feel trapped in your sins, when you feel held hostage by those bad habits, Jesus is the one who can set you free. He can save you, He can cleanse you, He can forgive you, and He can give you a fresh start. He will deliver you from the evil one. And that's why we end this prayer with praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We end the prayer as we began it, focusing on the God who is, on His kingdom and His glory and the power that He has to answer our prayers. Everything is from God, it is for God, it is to God. He deserves all the praise and the worship because He is our Father in heaven. He is our coming King. He is the one whose will is done on earth. He is the one who provides for our daily needs and forgives us of our sins. He's the one who protects us in times of testing and delivers us from the evil one. And because this is the God that we serve, He is worthy of our worship and our praise. And that's the fourth principle. The kingdom prayer is communal prayer. It's not just that God does this for me. He does it for everyone who will come to Him in faith and trust. He is our Father. He forgives us of our sins. He provides for our needs. He doesn't lead us into temptation, but delivers us from evil. As we approach God as our Father, we can't forget that we come to Him in a family with brothers and sisters. We come to Him together. We are the family of God. And this is a family prayer. You know, Christians have been following this model prayer around the clock all over the world since about 60 A.D., about the time that Matthew wrote this. And so I want us, before I end this sermon, to just pray this prayer together. Not as just a rote thing to do, but to to join our hearts to this eternal chorus and to pray this prayer, meaning it, because He is our Father. Let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Are you a child of this Father? Have you experienced the forgiving of your debts? Have you experienced deliverance from your sins? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He suffered for us and took our sins upon Himself that we might pray this prayer. That we might have access to the Father. That we could find provision for our needs and forgiveness of our debts. But if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've not opened up your heart to Him and freely received that gift of grace, then all this can ever be is just a rote prayer. But if you want to know the power of that prayer, if you want to mean it from the bottom of your heart, then you come this morning and you put your faith and your trust in the Christ who died to make this prayer a reality for you.